Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. So what is a mark of a disciple? Somebody who abides in the Word, right? So the Word of God has to be a part of a disciple's life. So let me ask you a question. How much in the Word are you? What kind of disciple are you? If we had to rate your discipleship of following Jesus according to how you read God's Word and study God's Word, how much of a disciple are you? That's, that's one of the outmarks of it. James 2.19 says it this way. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons, what? Do you know that the demons have faith in God? You know that? They believe in God. They understand and would put their weight on the fact that God exists today. And what do they do when they see God? They shake in their boots, would be the phraseology we'd, be, we'd use today, right? Their, their knees are knocking. Why are their knees knocking? They're afraid of him. Why? They know who he is. They know his power. They know his might. They know his position. They know who and what he is. And we would do well in Scripture to understand who he is and what he's like and, and, and who our Savior really is. Even the demons believe in trouble. When I say they have faith, they don't have believing faith for salvation. They have faith that he exists. They know he exists. Which, <laughs> I, I have a sermon, sometime I'll have to preach it. Don't be dumber than a demon. Right? Don't be dumber than a demon. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, don't be dumber than a demon, okay? Even the demons believe and tremble in the presence of God. Think about that. The demons believe in the existence of God. So somebody who's a human says, well, I don't believe in God. What are you dumber than? Even the demons believe in tremble. So it's one thing to say that you have faith, but it's another thing to actually follow Christ. It's another thing to actually follow Christ. Think about when Matthew was called. How was he called? What were the words spoken to him? Two words. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. Well, where are we going? How are we going to know when we get there? So this morning, I want to give you four descriptions of a disciple in verses 31 and 32 that we just looked at. A disciple is one who grows. A disciple is one who shows. A disciple is one who knows. And a disciple is one who goes. And all four of those we can see prevalent in the scriptures that we just looked at in verses 31 and 32. So there's a whole separate sermon for you, but let, let's kind of break it down a little bit. A disciple is somebody who grows in God's word. Look with me again at verse 31 because it introduces a conditional clause in the Greek. It says, if you abide in what? If you, if you abide in me or if you abide in my word... That literally means to dwell in, to remain in, to continue in, to live in it. It is referred to staying in a house and becoming so in love with the place that the house becomes your home. How many of you remember when you bought your house and you walked in and you're like, I love it. And today you're like, I want to sell it. Right? This house. No, you walk in and it's like, we got to have this place. This is our home, Right? So that's what it means to dwell in the word of God, to make it your house, to make it your home, the place that you dwell, the place that you live in, the place that you take up residence is in the word of God. We don't just come to the word of God as an occasional guest. We're to move in and live there. We're to wake up there. We're to go to sleep there. The idea is that we're to sit and soak in the scriptures like a sponge that hasn't touched water in months. 
Just suck it up. Notice Jesus uses a singular here. He says, my word, not what? My words. He's talking about the whole of what it is. Not just you keep this commandment or that commandment. If you abide in my teachings, you abide in all that I am, you're my disciple. He's referring to the sum of the total of all that he's taught them. John challenge, or Jesus challenges the religious leaders again in John chapter 5, verse 38. Look at this verse. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. So what is the mark of an unbelieving disciple? That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? An unbelieving disciple? Because the disciple is one who what? Follows. So an unbelieving disciple would be what? Somebody who doesn't follow. He's not following somebody. So it says, you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. In other words, the disciple's rejecting his teacher. So let me ask you a question. Are you a disciple if you don't have a teacher? No. So how many of you are, are, are a disciple? Do you have a teacher? Who's teaching you? And what are they teaching you? That matters. John 14, 23, I like what this verse says. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our... Say it together. Is Jesus at home with you? And who's the we? The Father and Jesus will make home with you. Think about that. Who indwells the believer? You'll have the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a verse that said that? In you dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily? Wouldn't that be a, be a great verse? Somebody should write that down. So the question is, is God at home in your heart? Do you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in your life through the Word of God, through prayer, through discipleship? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when we received, when you received the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it not with the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, the believers. The word abide there is used again in John 15, 17, and, or 15 and verse 7 and 15 and verse 9. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. In the most extensive discipleship study ever done, Lifeway Research, shared its findings after a decade worth of research and the scope of the project spanned over eight countries with over 1,000 pastors and surveyed over 4,000 Protestant believers in North America. Four discipleship insights came of this study. This was a study just done a couple years ago. Number one, discipleship is always intentional. Do you realize you will not accidentally become a disciple? You will not accidentally get discipled and you will not accidentally fall into discipleship. None of those are true. Discipleship is intentional. You seek discipleship, you seek to disciple somebody. Number two, groups matter a whole lot. People in a group tend to associate with one another and fellowship with one another. They feed off one another. This is why 
you need a balance of ministries. You need some small groups, you need large group. You need individual things and you need group activities. Number three, reading the Bible matters more than anything else. It is the most important growth metric of all. How much of the word of God do you know? A little or a lot? Those that know a lot, their lifestyles are vastly different than those who know very little about what God's word teaches. And then the number four thing they discovered is this. The the discipline of the Bible engagement impacts every other discipline. In other words, when you discipline yourself to be in the word, it will change your life. When you're in the word of God, your life changes. When you're not in the word of God, it doesn't change. It stays the same. Now, for us that are Christians, we kind of look at that and we're like, duh, right? But think about it. How many people in church today really know these things? So what this teaches us is this. Turning to scripture should be an intuitive response for every Christian, yet the American Bible Society's annual state of the Bible 2020 report, this is last, just last year, uh, said this about people in 2019. That in 2019, the lowest number of people were in the word than in any decade of research prior. We have more access to the word of God today and less people are reading it. By the way, 9% of all Christians. 9%. That means, you know what we have? A lot of illiterate people when it comes to God's word. We have a lot of illiterate people when it comes to God's word. And they're going around being driven by their passion, being driven by false teachers, or being driven by their passion rather than what God's word actually says. So let me ask you a question. If you don't know what God's word says, and somebody tells you that God's word says something, who are you going to believe? How do you know it's true? If somebody handed you a bogus $100 bill, would you know it? Have you ever studied the $100 bill? You give a bogus $100 bill to a banker, and what happens? They know it's fake, because they've studied it. They've researched it. They know what the marks are of a counterfeit $100 bill. They can see it. And you know what? Christians that know the Bible can see counterfeit Christians faster than anything else. That's why when a pastor says somebody's disgenuous or uh, disgenuous or somebody, they say, hey, be, be careful, their, their intuition's a little steeper than those who don't know the Word of God. There's a reason they're saying that. Get to know what that reason is. They say, yeah, that's a good guy. Just be careful. Why? What do you know that I don't know? What what is your perception that I don't know? And we got to be careful in that too because we can project on people things that aren't true too, right? That's why I love what the Berean people do in the Bible. What was the Berean church known for? Searching the word diligently, steadfastly. Every time they heard the word of God, they dug in the word of God to say, is this true? Because we live in a day of relative truth, don't we? What's true to you may not be true to me. I think today's temperature is great, don't you? Oh, I want it hotter. No, I want it colder. I want snow. I want rain. I want wind. What is truth? You know, it's no wonder our morals and our doctrine are slipping in in today's churches because we don't know what the word of God says we're biblically illiterate 
Listen, the only way to detect error is to dwell in God's word. The only way to grow as a believer is to know what the Bible says. So here's a question for you. What's your plan for reading God's word this year? What, what, what's your plan for memorizing scripture the rest of this year? What's your plan? Or is there no plan? Those who fail to plan, plan to what? By the way, let me show you even how fast. Jesus in the passage of scripture, I wonder if you caught it. Jesus did something to his people in this passage of scripture that, that they missed, that they don't understand. And they're so blinded by their own illiteracy of their history that they don't understand the current dynamic they find themselves in. And Jesus trying to declare truth to them and they don't even get it. It's like flying over their head 100 feet high. They totally whiff it. Check this out. The Jews who were listening to the Lord didn't like hearing that they needed to be set free. So they began to push back at Jesus' argument here. Okay? So if you're going to watch the wisdom of man against the sovereignty of God, here it is on, on, on prime display. So don't, don't do this, okay? You'll be better off, I promise. But watch what they do. They answered him and said, We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say you'll become free? Now, now, I don't know much about Jewish history, but how many times were the Jews slaves? I, I'm not the smartest off the block here, but I fully recall Egypt, right? Babylon, Assyria, and um, by the way, who are they stuck under when Jesus is on, on the earth? The Romans. What? <laughs> do you see it now? Who do you think you are, Jesus? We're so smart. We've never been enslaved by anyone. We're Abraham's seed. Could you imagine Jesus standing there looking at the religious leaders arguing this argument? Can, I mean, can you, <laughs> I think he laughed. I do. I think he actually laughed on this one. I think he was like, what? Excuse me? So those Romans are Jews? I, I mean... <laughs> It's ludicrous, but it's on the screen right there. It's in your Bible. You can read it clear as day. God encapsulated this for us. They, they forgot their history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, now living under Roman rule. They also had a war view of their own sinfulness, thinking that because they kept the rules of Abraham, that they were good to go. And by the way, we see this today, don't we? As long as I check the boxes and I do the right stuff and I say the right things, then I'm good to go. And Jesus is just laughing. He's like... Are you serious? Are you, are, are you serious? This is what you're going to stand on before God? By the way, that reminds me, sin leads to bondage, doesn't it? Sin leads to bondage. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, They thought they were spiritually superior, but Jesus makes it painfully clear that everyone is in bondage to sin. That you cannot be freed from sin until you admit that you've been enslaved to sin. This is the essence of repentance. Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to not only dummies. Were you under Egypt? Were you under Babylon? Were you under Assyria? Are you under the Romans? But you're so blinded by your own pride, you don't even see the sin you're currently committing. And he says, so not even a nation are you bound by, but you're bound by your own sin. Before leaving this passage, though, Jesus gives a warning and then a welcome. He says, he is the bondage breaker. 
He is the bondage breaker. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you are free what? If Jesus unshackles you, who can put the shackles back on? Only Jesus. Who holds the key? If you're handcuffed today, and you are handcuffed by your sin, and Jesus has the key and unlocks the handcuffs, and you put the handcuffs back on, who's the only person who can loose you again? And he's not going to let you have the handcuffs back. So guess what you don't have to worry about? You can't enter into bondage a second time. This is the argument of Hebrews 6, isn't it? Those who were once enlightened in the truth, how can they fall away? If they fall away, they were never saved in the first place. Because how can we who have seen God not see God again? This is more evidence that the Son is truth because of, look at verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will... Isn't that true of COVID? When you find out the real facts, and you find out what reality is, you don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live afraid of what's going on in the world. You don't have to be... By the way, God is not the author of what? He's not the author of fear. So if fear is driving your life, stop following Satan. Start living the life that God intended you to have. Galatians 5.1 for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of what? And the slavery is to what? Sin. Stop doing it. He says you are free indeed. So how should we respond when we see these truths? E.W. Tozer, one of his books, said this, Each generation of Christians must look to its own beliefs. While truth itself never changes, the mind of men is porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may seep and dilute the truth that it actually contains. The human heart, therefore, is heretical by nature and runs error as naturally as a garden does with weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. So how do we know what we believe and how do we know it's right? How do we respond? Well, number one, develop a plan to soak up scriptures in your life. Develop a plan. Since many of us struggle with Bible reading, I want to I give you a concept. View your scripture reading in two ways. Number one, intentional intake. And number two, crisis intake. Okay? Intentional intake and crisis intake. Now, a lot of us are good at crisis intake, right? There's a lot of bad things happening. God's got to give me a word. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu. Well, that's not going to help me. You shall have no... Well, that one's not going to help me. And in crisis, we run to the Bible. We look for a verse. We claim the verse. We don't know what the context is. But we're like, God, give this to me. And then when he actually does, we're mad. Because we find out that was an imprecatory psalm. And that was probably not the best one to pick. Because I just called judgment down on myself. Because we don't know the Word of God. So instead of crisis intake, let's back up a step and let's do intentional intake. When we intentionally discipline ourselves to read the Bible every day so that we know what's in the Bible, how are you going to know what's in the Bible if you don't read the Bible? You're going you're to have to depend on somebody else telling you what it says. How do you know the person telling you what it says is right? Well, because he went to school a lot. You know what? False teachers went to school a lot. People who have been sincere have been sincerely wrong many times. 
And you've experienced that in your own life. You've been sincerely wrong before. Well, they just have a good heart. Well, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's been really good intended people that ended up really bad and leading a lot of people astray. So when it comes to understanding scriptures, you need to be in the word yourself. Jesus assumed, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus assumed that you would be in the word. And he assumed his followers would be in the word. Check it out. Let me show you a couple, a couple illustrations of this. One illustration is found in Luke chapter 17 and verse 32. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife? In order to remember something, what must you know? You must have experienced it, right? You must have already been exposed to the truth. And Jesus is talking to his followers and says, do you guys remember Lot's wife? And what is the, what's the response? Yeah. Why could they respond that way? Because they knew the scriptures. Remember righteous Lot? In order to remember, you must first know it in the first place. So are we reading the Bible proactively every day with intentionality so that we can know what the Bible says? This is intake, intentional intake. By the way, there's so many passages of scriptures where Jesus refers to something in the Old Testament that they already knew was true. And, and they went with it. And, and they, they knew what he was talking about. So it's assumed that we know this. But then there's crisis intake. This is when you go through a difficult time and you allow circumstances of life to drive you back to scriptures. David experienced this many times. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might what? When do you learn the best? When you fail. When we fail or when we fall short of the goal is when we learn, isn't it? If you always succeed at everything in life, what do you never do? You never learn. So failures are not bad if we learn from them. But we don't intentionally go out and be dumb so that we can be more experienced in wisdom either. You just learn. You don't have to learn through experience of bad things. These approaches, to work to, these approaches work together because intentional reading will help you know how to react when crisis hits. Rather than using crisis to learn and to grow in your spiritual life, which is a really hard way of doing things. There are guys in the Bible who did that, right? How many of you heard of a guy named Samson? Right? Talk about a guy who was the glutton for punishment. Right? He had all the potential in the world, and yet what did he do every time? He'd fail, and he'd learn, and then he'd do something again, and he'd fail, and he'd learn. And there's so many other people we could look at. But number two, study how the Savior views Scripture. How did Jesus view Scripture? How did he use Scripture when he was on earth? There are five ways, I believe, that Jesus anchored his teachings to the Word of God. And, and I bet there's a whole bunch of them, but let me just give you these in passing. Jesus told religious leaders that they were wrong because they didn't know the Scriptures. Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus told others the scriptures bear witness about himself. John chapter 5, verse 39. When tempted by the devil, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy three different times. If your eternal, or if your, your experience to overcome Satan depended on the book of Deuteronomy, how would you do? If your victory depended on you quoting Deuteronomy, how would you defend your faith? How about Leviticus? That's even better, right? Jesus uses Deuteronomy three times to overcome Satan. 
Jesus came to fulfill Scripture, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus spoke of the Old Testament as a historical record of people and events. He spoke of Adam and Eve in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. He spoke of Jonah and the great fish in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He spoke of Noah and the flood in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. What did he automatically assume when he quoted these verses? That his people would know the scriptures. So it is assumed by Christ that his followers will know his teachings. After all, how can you follow somebody you don't know? How do you follow somebody you don't know? And where are you going to find them if you don't know where they're going to be? That's why I love how we started this passage. Remember, Jesus was going to go to Galilee. Where did the disciples have to go to see him? They had to go to Galilee. They had to go 90 miles to go see him. And when they got there, they saw him. And they fell down and they worshipped him because they knew where he was going to be. Number three, test the teachings that you hear. Test the teachings that you hear. Not every bestseller book out there today, not every podcast is worth your read, your time, and your money. Not every popular preacher is worth listening to. 1 John 4, 1 says this, Beloved, do not, be to, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. What does that insinuate? Some are not of God. Whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That means this, you need to check out what I say as well and make sure it's in Scripture. I hope you do that. Number four, don't be a spiritual hypersomniac. What's a hypersomniac? Well, what's a hyposomniac? Someone who can't sleep, right? So a hypersomniac is some, or hyposomniac is somebody who can't sleep. They're up all night long and they can't fall asleep. So a hypersomniac is somebody that does what? They fall asleep everywhere. For any reason, at any time. They could be driving down the road and... I might put myself to sleep in some sermons. I don't know. Hypersomniac. Don't be a hypersomniac. The Bible tells us this. Last week I established that it's impossible to coast into Christ-likeness. It's impossible to coast into discipleship. Romans 13, 11, it says that it is high time to live on mission by obeying God. Listen to what it says. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to what? Be a hypersomniac. Awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we what? How many believe that you're closer to the return of Christ today than when you first got saved? You say, well, chronologically, of course, uh, duh. I'm not, the Bible's not talking about time here. It's talking about the season of spiritual life you see. Is the season of spiritual life that you're seeing more in, in, inducive to the end times than it was when you got saved? If so, you're ramping up for an event. It's crescendoing to something that's coming. We say amen, but how many of our unsaved family and friends are going to go to hell and go into the tribulation because we haven't shared That's the sobering mindset. That's what Jesus is saying here. Awake! Because now salvation is needed more than ever because the time is getting near. Sometimes we take the word of God for granted and we don't value it the way that we should. Kind of like a young man who was getting ready to graduate from college and 
this young man eyed a beautiful sports car in the dealer showroom and took his father to see this every once in a while, hoping that as a graduation gift, dad would what? Dad would give us the car. After he graduated at the ceremony, he walked off the stage, he sat down next to his friends and began to tell them about the prize he was about to get. Later that day, they finally get back to the house and before his graduation party occurred, the proud father handed his son a box wrapped up with a bow on it. And the young man, excited and intrigued what's in the box, had just these beautiful visions of the car he's about to receive. The man hands the son the, book, the, the box, and inside the box he opens it up, and there's a Bible. With a little disappointment, the son began to peel back the leather Bible cover that has his name embossed on the lower right-hand cover. He raised his voice at his dad and he shouted, You got me a Bible for graduation? Really? All the money that you have, this is what I get? The son drops the Bible on his dad's desk, storms out of the office. And a relationship is severed. It's fractured. The young son never apologizes to his dad. Only two years pass. His dad dies of a massive heart attack. The son gets word that his father has passed and the son is in charge of the estate due to the divorce that occurred just a few years before his graduation. Now he has to go through his dad's things. He walks into his dad's office that he hadn't been in since the day that he and his father had this interaction and he looks on his desk and guess what he sees? His Bible sitting there with his name on it. He picks up the Bible and he opens it up and it's tabbed, it's marked, it's dog-eared in the corner and it says this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who seek him? Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. He closed the Bible, and as he closed the Bible, he felt something on the back hit his finger. He flips the Bible over to discover on the back is a key. And below the key is words. Paid in full. Some of God's richest blessings are packaged in God's word. The problem is many Christians will live and die without ever experiencing them simply because they won't open his book. The Father has given you a book. He's given you truths. He's dog-eared chapters for you. He's given you experiences where his word proved that it can help you. But will we learn to love it? Will we learn to live by it? Will we grow? Will we show? Will we know? Will we go? You know, some people believe that all religions are the same. We hear that all the time, don't we? All religions are the same. David Platt, you may know who he is or you may not, but he did an illustration. He was in a debate with two other religious leaders from different denominations other than Baptist. David Platt himself is a Baptist. And he's in a debate with these two other religious leaders from other denominations. And... Um, they're trying to describe how to get to God. The relationship between man and God. 
And David says this, it's almost like when you guys picture God at the top of a mountain and we're all at the bottom. And one says, I may take this path up and you're going to take this path up. And in the end, we're going to end up at the same place. And they smiled and simply said, that's right, David, that's exactly what we're trying to tell you. It's exactly. So you understand what, what we're teaching, where we're at. He goes, I do, but what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way to him, but instead he left where he is and came down to us. And as he came down to us, he wanted to meet us where we are and take us by the hand and walk us back up the path that he chose for us. To which he replied, this is the difference between what we find in the Bible and the story of God. God has not left us to find our way to him. He's told us that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and you can't get to him unless you go through Jesus Christ. So this morning, what do you believe about God's word? Is it the way? Is it the truth? Is it the life? Is it the sole authority of faith and practice? Or are we going to let religion tell us what we're going to do? Let religion tell you how you can get to God. Let some teacher who doesn't know his Bible tell you what his thoughts are on God's word. You know what? I hope you don't take my thoughts on God's word. I hope you take what God's word says. And if my thoughts contradict God's word, you leave my thoughts alone and you follow God's word. Because there's not a man alive that can add to this book. Except one. And he wrote the book. And if he wrote the book, who has the privilege to add to his book? He can. And you know what? There are some stories yet to be told, aren't there? What's it going to be like for all of eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ on a new heaven and new earth? What's that going to be like? He knows it, but we don't know that yet. That's not yet revealed to us. But we don't need to worry about those things in the future, right? What do we need to worry about today? Number one, how am I living for Christ? And number two, who am I bringing with me to heaven? What am I doing for Christ today? And who am I bringing with me to heaven? God doesn't care how good your good works are. Those are a byproduct of somebody that knows his word. But the reality is, Christ wants to know more than anything today this. Number one, is your name written in his book? You realize that's what's important. Is your name written in his book? You say, well, I know about God. Well, the demons know about God, but they actually respect him. Is your name written in his book? And then number two, who are you discipling right now through his book? Who are you coming alongside as a paraclete? As the Holy Spirit comes alongside you, who are you coming alongside to disciple them in what the Bible says? And what the Bible means? You say this morning, we spent this time, I did nothing but read you scripture the whole time. I gave you four points and I read scripture. And God wants you to surrender to him. You know what? You can have full assurance right now that your sins are paid in full because Jesus made his way to you. Aren't you glad? He didn't leave you to wander in the wilderness of the world trying to find him. He left heaven and became like us so that he could come alongside, take our hands, he died on the cross. He took your sins. He raised up the third day, having victory over the death angel, Lucifer himself. And today, if you place your faith in him, you can lovingly follow him every day intentionally. And then when crisis hits, guess what, guess what you can do? 
you can depend on him. And you can follow his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by? So how much are you in the word of God? How strong is your faith? You know what? I'm not afraid what the world's throwing at us today. You know why? Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I know that how? His word. Why do I not have to live in fear? Because I know the living word of God abides in me. And if I abide in his word, then what's going to happen? What can man do to me? If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can be thrown in a fiery furnace and Jesus shows up in the furnace, what can you do to those boys? If you can't kill them, what can you do with them? That's Christianity. That's what Jesus Christ wants is unadulterated surrender and say, Lord, not my will, your will. Not my way, your way. Not my thoughts, your thoughts, says the Lord. So what are you going to do with his word this week? How are you going to live for Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, help us to see that your word is quick and powerful and it is sharp as a two-edged sword. And Father, in just a moment, as we sing these songs to you, I pray, Lord, that we as Christians who are who, who know your word and who have experienced your love and who have the Holy Spirit residing in us, that, Father, we would surrender back to you again. Help us to just lay down our torch. Help us to lay down our life and help us to lay down our thoughts and take up what Jesus Christ is about. About sharing our faith, about living the life of a Christian, about placing the right things in the right order to get the right results. But Father, there may be some Christians here today who have fallen away. There may be some who haven't read their Bible in a really long time. There's some here that are being tossed to and fro with doctrinal issues, and they don't even know what the Bible says when it comes to, maybe it's eternal security, maybe it's about um, how to be saved, maybe it's about the things that they got to get rid of, or, or something about repentance. They just don't understand it. Father, I pray that, number one, they'll intentionally begin to get in your word and begin seeking. Because when we seek, we will find you, say. You'll make yourself known to us. But, Father, I pray that there will be those that we go to also and say, can you help me? Can you help my unbelief? Help me to believe. Help my unbelief. And that, Father, there will be those of us who would take the word of God and would meet with them on a regular basis and show them what the word of God says concerning the questions and issues they have in their life. And Father, it's not the pastor's job to do that alone. It's the church's job to train the church, to train up one another, to hold one another accountable, to grow in the fullness and likeness of Jesus Christ. So Father, help the body to be unified. Help us to educate one another, encourage one another as iron sharpens iron, so a friend the countenance of his friend. And Lord, may your truth stand, for your word is truth. And help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And Father, help us to be thoroughly convinced that your word is a sole authority of faith and practice. It's not a church. It's not tradition. It's not a denomination. It's your word. And Father, when there is somebody that goes against your word, may we do as Second Peter tells us to do and to mark them and call them out and, and, and disciple them in what your word says. And if they're not willing to listen to your word, Father, then we know what they are. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. So help us to mark those who are deceiving those from the faith. Lord, give us discernment. Give us a voice to sing for you today. And Lord, may we praise and honor you as we're commanded to do in Scripture. Because if we won't praise you, it says even the rocks would cry out that God exists. So Father, may we make a joyful noise to you. In your name we pray.